Well, church, um, we have been studying the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. We've been looking at it uh, in sort of a big overview sense, in a way to grab hold of the big concepts of the news about Jesus, that Paul wants to make sure his brothers and sisters, who he hasn't yet met, he's on his hoping to head to Rome eventually, but he wants to make sure they understand uh, the, the news and, and the way he's carrying it. So um, we've been working to understand it in that sense, hoping as a church that we are internalizing these things, listening in a way that we can pass them along. So I would encourage you to listen with that ear and hopefully the way I've uh, pulled these things together would be helpful to that end and not confusing in that direction. So we have uh, come now to uh, perhaps the, the climax of the letter, what many, the chapter that many throughout history have called the greatest chapter in the Bible, the Holy of Holies in the temple of Scripture. I'm talking about Romans chapter 8. We're going to start our reading a little bit before Romans chapter 8, eight this morning and then work through it. So now here a reading from the end of Romans 7 and Romans 8. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, as we consider the law, the effects of the life-giving Spirit today, uh, it would be a sad irony if we only learned something in our minds, some concepts, but weren't transformed, didn't experience you. But Lord, there's nothing that I can do to cause us to experience you. I just ask in Jesus' name that your spirit would come and fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, um, I included a little bit of the end of Romans chapter 7. One, because it's a really pitiful place to break a chapter from 7 to 8 where it breaks. You know, the 7 ends with a big problem. Like, 
We've got this news about Jesus. He's done this. He's, he's earned this great victory. There's this huge promise about the forgiveness of sins. And, and it's the gospel that Christians love to tell. And yet we've got this problem. The world continues to be a broken and sinful place. And I continue to be a broken and sinful place. And no matter how hard I try, I continue to find myself failing again and again, even if I'm certain of Jesus' death and resurrection and can interpret it with confidence from the Hebrew scriptures that he came to fulfill, even if that gives us a reasonable expectation of God's victory, this world is still a broken place, riddled with sin, injustice, corruption, brokenness, and evil. That's the tension that we were in. That's where we left off last week. Paul cautions his readers from taking God's grace for granted. He rejects the idea of demonizing the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, you know, the law's job in part was to reveal sin, and it did it really well. Romans 6 and 7 left us bewildered, okay? So sinning more isn't the way to more grace. Uh, the law isn't wicked, but I still struggle with sin. I'm still exposed by the law, and but... Okay, and in the very end, he's like, but Jesus is the answer. It's the great Sunday school response. What do I do? Who will save me? Jesus. That's where chapter 7 ends. The question is, how? How will that happen? I, we weren't meant to stop at the end of chapter 7 and wait till next week to keep reading. All right? Chapter 8 resolves the melody that's left unresolved by chapter 7. It's the it, you know, chapter 7 is the, the if without the then. It, at, at nighttime, um, you know, my, so my son and, and daughter are in a bunk bed, William and Olivia. She's four. Uh, William likes to, you know, as we wind down for sleep at night, he likes to do questions. You know, we, so all sorts of questions. If you could be an animal all day tomorrow, what would you be, et cetera, et cetera. But Olivia sometimes likes to jump in and ask questions, but her questions are almost always an if without, uh, without the then. If, if, if all the animals in the world, and then you're like, what? <laughs> She's like, that's my question. I don't know what you mean. That's what chapter 7 does. And, and frankly, chapter 7 finishes with a false then at the end of it. You know, if we still wrestle with the sin that Jesus conquered, then maybe we should try really hard on our own strength to conquer it. He plays this out in his own life and shows that it's not the then we're looking for. We end up frustrated, depressed, angry, hopeless. These are experiences that Paul knows too well. He gets really honest when he shares about it. Here comes the breakthrough moment, church. Jesus has not only conquered sin in a legal sense in the past. He hasn't merely promised to end sin in the future. He has sent his spirit to show his conquest in the midst of the present. Romans 8 is the New Testament's most detailed meditation on the Holy Spirit. It is beautiful and remar remarkable. It's, it's frankly, you know, it's such a glorious chapter, but it really is a list. It's a list of the Spirit's effects. It's a list of the symptoms of the Holy Spirit. 
the, the, it, it shows the reasons we're not stuck languishing after the resurrection, but before Jesus restores all things. It says, believers, take heart. These ideas are true for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might wonder, what, what difference does the news about Jesus make? Because, you know, I look out and, and the biggest problem for a lot of people about Christianity is, is Christians, right? Well, here it is. Here's the potential difference. Through Christ's victory over death, he has earned the right to send the Spirit to us. So we're going to walk through this chapter and celebrate the gifts that have been given to every believer through the Spirit. These aren't, you know, people who've been around Christianity a lot. You might hear gifts of the Spirit and think of things that are listed in other places. These are the more foundational gifts. These are given, all of them, to every believer. So the first one, out of the section we just read, verses 1 through 4, is freedom from actual guilt. So as I was wrestling with how to teach this today, this week uh, I got to hang with Taylor, who's running uh, sound right now. Uh, many of you know that Taylor recently returned to Christianity, um, and he's, he's new to Romans. We've been reading it in the men's Bible study, and, and it's Taylor's first time reading through Romans. I'm sure it's dizzying uh, as we've been going through it. So Taylor, with his love for the Lord and, and his newness, it was the perfect guy to ask about this. I said, man, how, how have you experienced the Spirit? After all, this chapter is like a lot of relig confusing religious language from afar. And we risk, if we have too much exposure to the ideas, we kind of risk being numb to the reality. You guys know that feeling? Like you get so narrow in that like, okay, it's supposed to look like this, this, and this, you know, or, or maybe we, we look for an emotional experience or something, you know. So I wondered for someone who's in this new place, how, how has he experienced the Spirit? Taylor told me this story. When he was investigating the claims of Christianity, just before we met him, probably around that time, he came across an uh, interview of a medical doctor who was describing in pretty gory detail the effects on Jesus' body on the cross, right? What, the, what that execution, what the crucifixion was like. And as Taylor listened, he was overcome. He collapsed on his floor, weeping, crying out, what have I done to you, Lord? Something took that information and, and interpreted it like that for Taylor. What have I done to you, Lord? Now, this may not sound like freedom from guilt, but that's exactly what was happening. By reflecting on the physical suffering of Jesus, the Spirit made a connection that Taylor did not expect. Jesus died the death that Taylor deserved. That's what he was experiencing. The greatest act of the Spirit, you guys, the greatest act of the Spirit, how you can be certain that the Spirit is at work is when our attention gets pointed to Jesus, particularly his work on the cross. How do we know when the Spirit is at work? It's not when people are doing something strange or impressive, you know, because often that draws attention to people. 
No, it's when our attention is drawn to Jesus. We can't look on the glory of Christ without the Spirit's help, but when we do, we experience freedom from actual guilt. Let's keep looking at the chapter. I'm going to, in, in each section, I'll read a little bit more of the chapter to you. So verses 5 through 9, they say this. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God, but you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So what is the second benefit of the Spirit? A renewed, life-giving perspective. We see things differently. In chapter 7, Paul meditated on a particular sin that's listed in the Ten Commandments, the sin of covetousness. Covetousness, what a religious word that is. You know, the, to covet, to desire something, to yearn for something that is not rightfully yours. This desire drove Adam and Eve to take the forbidden fruit. It drove Cain to murder Abel. This desire drove the construction of the Tower of Babel and on and on and on. It's why people grasp and hoard power over one another, a right that doesn't belong to us. It's the source of our jealousy, our dissatisfaction, our fear of death. We want something that we don't have in the limits of our life. But those who live according to the Spirit have a new outlook. That's the promise. The outlook of the flesh lusts for that which it does not have. In our flesh, we're always thinking about what we don't have, what we need. The outlook of the Spirit basks in what it does have. Like, can you just think about the freedom that that is offering to you? Everything in our world tells us to be driven by what we don't have. But believers have personal access to the creator and Lord of the universe. We have the gifts that I'm describing today. Christian contentment isn't merely learning to be satisfied with little, like living with this you know, meager, humble, little Reality, it's actually being satisfied as we recognize how much we have, basking in the riches of his glory, his wisdom, his provision, his care. It puts believers on a different plane than the typical spectrum of like lack and much, riches and poverty. It takes us out of that whole game. It puts us in a new place. That's a benefit of the Spirit. What's next? Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Wow. So the next benefit of the Spirit is our hope of resurrection. Hope of resurrection. I've been, you know, I've been encouraging you for the last uh, however many weeks as we've been in Romans uh, to have conversations with people 
who don't know Jesus. And, and not even to come in hot with, you know, let me tell you about Jesus, but to, to ask questions, to find out what the people in your life think. What, you know, what's, you know, is there anything wrong with the world? Is this world as good as it could be? And if, if not, what's wrong with it? And, and what's the solution to what you see as wrong with it? That's, I've been encouraging you to have these conversations. We're asking everyone to look for these opportunities um, and yet I myself, Pastor Mike, have been struggling to have these conversations. Like, it's hard to even get there with people. So I've been praying, Lord, just give me opportunities. Give me opportunities. Well, now I've received a couple emails. Apparently there is a class at a local high school that's, you know, a religion class. And they have this assignment. The students have to write an essay you know, interviewing a local religious expert. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they Google like a church nearby and somehow they, you know, they find my email address. So, you know, I, I've been praying for opportunities to talk about Jesus and high school kids who don't know anything about Christianity, apparently, are reaching out saying, hey, tell me, tell me about your beliefs. Like, <laughs> Okay, God, thank you for that. So um, he reached out to me, this kid. He had all sorts of questions about my life, why I'm doing what I'm doing, about the church, how my faith plays out in day-to-day -day life. And one of the questions that he asked was, have you ever doubted your faith? Have you ever doubted your faith? Well, what do you think? <laughs> my answer was, yeah, of course I have. Man, the, I wrote something about how important doubts are, in fact, and, and the fact that um, I, I feel really blessed that I w was raised in a family that it was safe to ask questions and to doubt. I, I was part of a church community early on, this church community that didn't villainize doubts, but saw them as opportunities to explore and deepen our faith. So I wrote, I wrote to him, the Bible's full of strange, even disturbing things. And I'd expect any honest reader to doubt as they're reading it. So that's what I wrote, and I felt pretty good about that. But after I sent my answers and was writing this sermon, I was like, oh, there's like, there's so much more to say. Get this kid back, you know. My, my mind returned to this. A lot of the doubts I experience are a version of terrifying questions. Like, what if this isn't true? What if this God isn't good? What if... What if this good God isn't the real God? Well, time and again, my doubts have taken me, however, and this is what I wish I had mentioned to him. Back to the empty tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the tomb where they laid Jesus's body. That's where my, it, when, when I get to questions that, I, that just scare me and I can't answer them, I find myself back there looking at the overwhelming evidence that contrary to the natural way of things, Jesus's body was raised back to life, that the tomb is empty. And in doing so, Jesus confirmed the hopes of Israel that this created physical world and all the bodies in it are being remade in the way of the king. Just as the Spirit draws our minds to the death of Jesus to liberate us from guilt, he orients us to the resurrection of Jesus to liberate us from hopelessness. 
You want to experience the Spirit? Consider the resurrection of Jesus. The Spirit uses His resurrection to say this to you. Your life has meaning. Your life. You've been invited into a huge and glorious story. The remaking of the world. It's a good benefit. What else? Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Hmm. He starts by saying, we have an obligation, and then he never actually says what our obligation is. He just says what it's not. We're not obligated to the flesh. Here's what's going on. The biblical promise is that when the Spirit is present, growth is inevitable. When the Spirit is present, growth is inevitable. The Spirit will gradually put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're no longer obligated to be slaves to our every whim and desire. Theologians call this process, you know, the putting to death of that desire, those deeds, they call this process the mortification of sin. And yeah, that's pretty good. At this point, many who might be encouraged by the rest of this chapter, though, you're hearing this point and you're thinking, if growth is inevitable for those people who have the Spirit, I'm in trouble. Does anyone resonate with that? <laughs> and if you do, good, good. You know why? There's a great irony. The paradox of spiritual growth is that it involves a growth of our awareness of the deeds of the flesh, of the stuff that we do and feel like we're enslaved to. The, the, the strange thing about Christian faith is that the more you grow in it, the worse you think you are. I know that sounds miserable, and there's a joy that comes with it too. But the more I grow, the more aware of my wickedness I become. So what do we do? I, I love the advice of Tim Keller. He says, believers should periodically ask people that they trust, are you noticing a change in me over time? I mean, there's a, there's a modern proverb for young parents. So Kale and Emily, you're the... You're the VIP parents today. So here's the modern proverb. You've probably heard this. The days are long, but the years are short. You've heard that, right? The days are long, especially when you have young kids, but the years are short. Raising young kids can be a slog, whether behavior or development or sleep or picky eating or the, the losing battle to keep the house clean. It, it, the days feel eternal sometimes. And we get worn down by it. But then someone visits who hasn't seen your kid in a few months. And, the, and you see them through their eyes. And, and they're overwhelmed by how much your kid has changed. How they've grown. And of course, those of you with adult children are, are laughing even at how short-sighted this example is. You blinked and your kids were out of the house. You maybe didn't feel the growth while it happened, but you look back and you're stunned by it. In the same way, that's, that's the promise that Paul is saying about the deeds of the flesh. They will be put to death and you will grow in life. The next one, though, might be the climax. Verses 14 to 17. 
He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Here I can only uh, describe in theory what actually some of you in this church have experienced in practice. Um, And I'm talking about adoption. Adoption. Theologian J.I. Packer says, adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. And so one of the great tasks of the spirit in your life is to confirm and approve Uh, confirm and prove and apply your status as an adopted son or daughter of God. Look, in, in this world, adoption implies a painful circumstance, right? If there's an adoption, you know there was some brokenness that necessitated that the birth parents were not available or properly able to care for their children. One adopted friend described the complexity of her story to me a while back. Adoption means both that at the very beginning of her life, she was unwanted and also that at the very beginning of her life, she was chosen. It it, it has pain involved in it. I mean, tragedy is what leads to adoption. One couple became the safe home and eventually the adoptive parents for two children who needed to be suddenly and quickly removed from an incredibly destructive and abusive situation. Now, given the story of the kids that came into their home, the chaotic and destructive behavior was totally uh, understandable. But there needed to be boundaries, and the boundaries were hard to keep. The parents tried many things, but one of the kids was so particularly out of control, so violent, so wild, um, that they didn't know what to do. So at the end of his rope, the adoptive dad held this little boy in a firm and gentle hug while the boy thrashed and lashed out and screamed and, you know, did all sorts of violence to the dad. But he couldn't think of what else to do. So in his big, strong arms, he just kept holding him and holding him and, you know, waited. And he held this thrashing boy for an hour before the boy at the end of the hour wore out. His fight was drained and he collapsed for the first time into a tender cuddle in this man's arms. And from that moment on, this boy has been drawn to this dad like a magnet. That embrace which he fought is now his source of peace and stability. How's the Spirit holding you while you thrash? 
Gosh, the, the emotional and developmental complexity of adoption, it's got to help us grasp the Spirit's work. As an adopted child grows and grapples with their status and identity, they can feel distinct, different from their biological or from the adoptive family, the rest of the family. It's incredibly common, even in safe, loving, ideal adoptive homes, for adopted kids at some point in their life to scream, I hate this family. I wish I'd never been adopted. I want to go back. And that can be really painful for the adoptive parents. They'll subsequently storm off and find a door to slam. Adoptive parents have to develop thick skin at the same time remaining very sensitive. The slammed door is the Holy Spirit moment. When mom or dad gently enters and sits on the floor next to their angry child, reciting the good news, the gospel of adoption, no matter what you do, no matter how you act, no matter what you say, you are my daughter. You're my son. You're a member of this family. I love you and you can't do anything about it. That's the message that kid needs to hear. It comes to us in our loud tantrums and in our quiet tantrums. And that's what the Spirit is doing again and again. Perhaps just when you come and gather on Sundays and you hear the news again, the Spirit has followed you into your room and sat on the floor with you. Highest gift of the gospel. What's next? Verses 18 to 25. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Friends, why is the gospel good news? Why is it? Why is it good news that Jesus is the king, that he's reigning over all? Not only is the Jesus the king our hearts do deeply desire, but his victory gives new meaning and purpose to suffering in this world. What could feel like gratuitous, overwhelming suffering is reframed. These are not death pangs. These are birth pangs. That's what we're experiencing. Something new is being born in the world. Let, let me say that differently. Um, that same high schooler who asked me questions and gave me a chance to do what I've been trying to get you all to do this week. He asked me, how do you show your faith? My most honest answer was not, um, we're not like how I show it, but how I hope to show it anyway. It occurred to me 
that the most opportune moment to show my faith is not when things are going great. It's not when things are going great. It's when there's pain and hardship and suffering. I hope the way that I respond to significant pain and suffering will be a spirit-filled response and put Jesus on display. And that's, the great, that's one of the great opportunities for us. And we experience it relationally. You know, the, the best time to be Christ-like is when someone has wronged you. The forgiveness that you show. Theologian Shirley Guthrie writes this. Christian spirituality recognizes the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in bad as well as in good times. We, we trust God as Jesus did, even as he suffered and died feeling totally God-forsaken. He says it recognizes that there will be added hardship and suffering for those who represent the kingdom of God's demand. Sorry, for those who represent the kingdom of God's demand for compassion and justice in a hostile world. He's actually quoting Romans 8 when he writes about this. He says, true spirituality is that of Christians who know that in the present um, who know that in the suffering of this present age, between the times, the Spirit does not always save us from our weakness, but helps us in our weakness to give us the comfort, help, courage, and strength to endure and entrust our lives to God, knowing that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Suffering is redefined by the Spirit. Finally, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Verses 26 to 30. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It might seem odd after all this talk about inevitable growth or hope or new perspectives or even adoption that at the end of this list, Paul turns again to weakness. Weakness. But if you've been tracking with Romans this far, you know that this is where he actually answers the big question. Jesus' death and resurrection have achieved a glorious victory. But in the present moment, it still feels slippery. All this talk about the Spirit, and some of you are like, I hope to experience some of what you're saying. I just, man, it's hard. It feels distant. Christian growth is nonsensical. It's not a simple, you know, up and to the right chart. You know, there's not just great, nice compound interests that we expected until two years ago on our heavenly accounts. It is, as we discussed earlier, often the case that our growth feels like a decline. I am haunted in my memory 
by the full-bodied energy and passion that I poured particularly into my prayers as a, as a young adult believer, as a teenager and, a, and in my 20s. I mean, man, I could just, with passion alone, I could shake the heavens. I believed that those prayers were changing the world. Believers, do you remember the thrill of your early love with Jesus? How easy it was to engage in spiritual disciplines because you were driven by a deep desire, a joy for the presence of God. It was readily at hand. You heard his voice. You felt his love. And we often tie those feelings to the spirit. And that's okay. I think the spirit is doing that. But when they begin to fade... Sometimes we get afraid that maybe the Spirit has left us. Maybe we did something. Paul's description of the Spirit here is good news. Back then, we thought we knew how to pray as we ought. And the further we went, the more we realized we have no idea. Our faith felt strong. Uh, the reading was exhilarating. Momentum carried us along. And then it stopped. And this, this is where the Spirit gets to work in us when our strength runs out, when we tire from the chase, when it seems our best efforts have little effect, the mature believer, surprisingly, does not know how to pray. It's the young believer who knows how to pray. The mature believer doesn't know how he should do anything. Theologian Simon Chan writes, little does the new convert realize that God, like every good farmer, is taking special effort to protect the young seedling from the severe natural elements. In the early stages of prayer, the Lord gives us pleasant experiences, little spiritual sweetmeats, which are withdrawn as soon as we have achieved some modicum of maturity. Only in our sense of spiritual weakness, what John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, do we actually learn deep dependence and trust on the Spirit? That's where we find the hope that he offers. And in that moment, friends, the Spirit is praying the prayers that you don't know how to pray. He's interceding for you. So what does all this mean? The climax of our service is the greatest illustration of it all. This table down here is kind of nonsensical. It's a little crazy. Think of the disciples gathered at the Passover Seder. They've made it to Jerusalem where the king is supposed to take the throne and defeat the Romans. They're remembering the defeat of Egypt. I mean, they're, that's what this meal was for them. Remembering the defeat of Egypt where God flexed his muscles and Egypt was crushed and they were liberated forever. They're anticipating that if Jesus is the Messiah, God is about to orchestrate a similar defeat of Rome. They don't know how to pray as they ought. They think they do. Their prayers would have been, raise up an army, overthrow Caesar. And Jesus prays and gives thanks for the bread and then says, this is my body and it's going to be broken. This cup is my blood. Jesus means not to crush Egypt the way God did in the Exodus, but to die the way the firstborn sons of the nation of Egypt died. 
in the place of his followers. Perhaps looking back on that, we can understand why Paul would break into a glorious meditation of God's plan and power. If Jesus' death was his victory, then suffering and hardship of his followers, those are the victory lap. All things are working together for our good since he carried out his plan perfectly. It doesn't mean all things go wonderfully. It means he shows his glory when they seem to be going poorly. His death cannot be undone. It cannot be erased from history. Not death, not persecution, and certainly not your weak faith or your struggles can overcome what he's done and the gift of the Spirit for you. Jesus is King, and he has sent his Spirit to claim his prize. And that's you. That's you. The Spirit's great work is to grab you and bring you back to King Jesus. So on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's the spirit who brings us to this table. It's the spirit who proclaims that in our lives. It's the spirit who reminds us that he's with us even in our tantrums. Friends, this is a family meal and you've been adopted in. This is a royal table and you get to sit with the king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you for what you have done in Jesus. And even more at this moment, we say thank you that you have sent your personal presence, your Holy Spirit to be with us in the here and now. Lord, let us be more aware of it, more submitted to it. Let us rejoice in it more. Let us rejoice in our sufferings. That when sickness and death and famine and sword and persecution come to us, we hear this, the victory cry of the Spirit. None of it will work. None of it will work. In Jesus' name, amen.